Hey, my name is Jensen, one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. We are continuing our series moving forward. I'm really excited this morning because I get to wear this headset. And uh, when I was a kid, my biggest hero in my life was Aaron Carter. So I get to live a little bit out of the Aaron Carter dream. They were like, do you want the handheld mic? I'm like, no, give me the Backstreet Boy thing. I want this. Um, We are continuing our series moving forward. What we're talking about is the grudges in our life that get us stuck, that keep us from moving forward and experiencing God's best for our life. In week one, Jordan talked about moving forward by slowing down, by sitting down and spending time with the Lord. Last week, he talked about moving forward by forgiving God. There are some grudges we have in our life through disappointment that we don't even realize when a prayer is not answered or our life isn't what we thought it would be. And it can keep us stuck from moving forward in our relationship with God. This morning, I have the opportunity to preach from a message entitled, Moving Forward, Letting Go of Offense. If you're taking notes this morning, my subtitle, I always like to have a more fun title than what Jordan gives me, is, uh, is Pocket Change. Pocket Change. We're going to be Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the moments that we share. I just pray as we lean into your word that we grow a greater understanding of how much you love us for the grace and mercy that you just so freely give to us, God. And so we, um, we just sit in your presence and I just pray that we leave here different with a greater awareness of Jesus and his love. Use this time, Father. We honor you, we trust you. It is in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, today is a special day for me because uh, today is June 26th and exactly one month ago on May 26th, me and Ashley got married. Come on, come on, thank you. We haven't accomplished anything, but I thank you for the applause. And so as soon as we got married, we, uh, we, we went on a honeymoon to Clearwater. And we were super excited to be in Clearwater. I decided we're gonna do some fun things. We're not just gonna sit at the beach, we're gonna go kayaking. And we're gonna go to a little island off of Clearwater called Honeymoon Island. It's fitting. And so we get in the kayak. I've never been kayaking. Ashley's been a couple times. And so she goes, hey, uh, do you want to sit in the front or the back? And I'm like, girl, come on. I'm leading this. I'll sit in the front. I didn't know that, like, to steer it and to have more control was in the back. But anyway, so uh, we get in, and we're arguing because we don't, we're not communicating very well. We're one week into marriage. We don't, you know, communication's off. So I'm going, hey, go right. Go, I go, right, 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 right. And she thinks that means um, use the right paddle. But to go right, you have to use a left. So there's this communication barrier, and we're just bickering and, and kind of arguing. We get to the island, and it's a wonderful time. It's beautiful. It's about three hours. We ran into an alligator. That was the only downside. But um, we, we, we go back in the kayak to go back to the shore, and I'll go, and I go, well, let me get in the back, you know, because I'm going to actually lead it this time. I'll, I'll be better from the back. And so I get, I get in the back, and we're, and we're going, and, um, and we're still having the same communication problems. So I said, you know, Ash, um, why don't you put your paddle down? I'll do it. I know we're going to go super slow, but like I'll have more control and I'll just take us. You don't have to worry about it. We don't have to fight. You know what, girl? It's sunny. You can enjoy your work on your tan. There's some dolphins. You can just enjoy it. Let me take it. And she says, nothing. But she puts her paddle down. 
And that was going well, slow but well, and so we see another kayak coming on our right, and this thing is moving at warp speed. There's one dude, and he's coming in hot. We're going to have a head-on collision. One of us has to give way. I look at him and say, go ahead. He says, no, no, I insist. You guys go ahead. I'm like, no, trust me. We're going really slow. You should go. He's like, no, you go. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Ash, I need you now. Pick up your paddle. Let's go. And my sweet, wonderful wife says, no. You said you got it. You said you can do it. So come on, man, lead us to shore. I'm offended. And so I said something that I'm really embarrassed to say here this morning. So I already feel your judgment. I said, now is not a good time, Ashley, for you to be a brat. Now, as soon as I said that, I tried to grab the words, but they were, it's too late. She heard it. I said, sorry so fast. Okay, but here's the thing. Let me, let me at least defend myself. Um, I didn't call her a brat. I just said, now's not a good time to be a brat, right? Like, there's a lot of good times to be a brat, just not now. Um, th- she didn't buy it either, and she was really offended, and rightfully so. Um, and we had a couple conversations. <laughs> I'd apologize, and even a few hours, a day later, there's still this hurt, this offense that she's holding, and rightfully so. This is what happens when offense, it can linger. It can get you stuck, you can hold a grudge. I think we're good now, we're good, okay, we're cool. Right? But it can turn into bitterness if we're not careful. It can make us really angry at the person that we love. Offenses, you know this, you live in 2022, offense is everywhere, it's anywhere. You can be offended by anything. Offense, by Webster's definition, is your feelings being hurt or being insulted. If that's the definition of offense, then we've all felt offense, and we probably are all carrying some type of offense this morning. I know that I am. And so what do we do with this offense? What do we do with it? We need to let it go. Because if not, we're going to get stuck. We're going to have problems in our relationships. We're going to get stuck. We're not going to be able to move on to where God wants us to be in our marriages, in our homes, in our church, and our friend groups are at work. But how do you let go of offense? That's the question, right? I think in order to, un- to let go of offense, we first have to understand offense. Where does it come from, and why do we have it? Ever asked that question? Where does offense come from? No, because when you're offended, you don't think. You're just offended. You react. Years ago, we're on a family vacation. We're in an elevator. The elevator doors are getting ready to close, and these two people walk in, and there's no nice way to put this. They stunk. Like, bro, they smelled so bad. And I'm trying, and we're like holding our nose, going like 17 floors up. And my grandma, who's with us, the sweetest woman of all time, she be- begins to make a fuss. You know how like older people are really sweet, but then they can, you know. <laughs> and she begins to do this. Shoo! <laughs> and we're like, stop. Shoo, shoo, shoo. My mom's like, mom, that is offensive. And she said, well, they are offending me. Right in front of them, right? The reality is this is what happens when we're offended. We just react a lot of times out of anger, right? So where does offense come from? We should really pause to consider that when we're offended. We're going to go through a case study in the book of Genesis through a guy, a man named Joseph, who may have experienced more offense than anyone else in the Bible outside of Jesus. And I think there's five areas that I've identified through this story where offense comes from. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure you can find more. But these are five areas. I've looked at my life and said, no, offense comes from these places. And Joseph is the son of Jacob. Jacob has 12 kids, Joseph being the young, not the second youngest, but the favorite. And I kind of know what that's like. My brother was in first service. I kind of looked at him and was like, I know what it's like to be the favorite. But uh, 
The brothers hate him because of the favor. On top of that, Joseph tells two dreams about how his brothers and the father are going to bow down to him one day. And normally I'm on Joseph's side, but it's like there's some things you shouldn't be telling everybody. Keep that one to yourself. No one wants to hear they're going to be bowing down to you. And so they hate him even further. They begin to disagree with his dream and his outlook on the future. So where does offense come from? Number one, offense comes from disagreement. This is not shocking to anybody this morning. You know this. Look no further than your mom's Facebook. Look at the comments. Just disagreement. It's not just disagreement either, is it? It's insults, right? People disagreeing with you about some serious things. It's never as simple as like, I like cherry pie, I like apple pie. It's like hard political times of things that people disagree adamantly about, but each side is so passionate because they believe it's right. And they believe that your beliefs are coming against theirs. And so we don't just disagree. We hold insults. We're angry. We're mean. And the fence can come from disagreement. You don't need much explaining about that. Well, Joseph's brothers, they do something about it. They just don't disagree. They decide to fake his death and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Because offense, number two, can come from rejection. Now, Joseph is going to experience some things that we will not experience, but we will experience the feelings that he experiences. Have you ever felt rejected? Someone didn't include you. You see on Instagram, all your friends are out, and they didn't. Where was my invite? You didn't get invited to that thing. Someone didn't text you back. You text them. You're waiting for a reply. They didn't text you back, and that communicates that they don't like you. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to be your friend. We feel rejection all the time, and it's something a lot of times small but it feels like rejection. Joseph's now in Egypt. He climbs his way up the ladder. He's in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is a high-ranking official in Egypt, and he likes Joseph. Joseph's a hard worker. The Bible tells us that Joseph is well-built and handsome. He's a hard worker, he's well-built, and he's handsome. So he's like a 10, but he's a workaholic. You know what I mean? Half the room got that. Anyone above the age of 30 is like, that wasn't for you, don't worry about it. Um, And so Potiphar's wife starts to look at Joseph kind of crazy. He's doing some landscaping, cleaning the pool, doing some dishes, and she starts to take a liking to Joseph. She's like, yo, Joe. She begins to try to seduce Joseph. Now Joseph says, hold on, you're married, and I work for your husband. On top of that, I would never sin against God. My guess is she felt rejected. Because of her offensive rejection, she gets Joseph back by ripping his cloak off. He runs away from her naked, and, he's, and she says, look, he tried to seduce me. Potiphar hears about it and throws Joseph in jail. Third way offense comes is through betrayal. Has anyone ever felt betrayal before? Someone breaking your trust, lying to your face, smiling when they're around you, but rolling their eyes when you walk away. How about you ever trusted someone with some important information, and they went and told someone else? Spreading rumors about you, betrayal could come from any amount of ways. Joseph's experienced betrayal. He's in jail now, and he meets, he meets some friends. The friends are getting ready to be released. Joseph says, hey, don't forget about me. Come back and get me. I'm innocent. Friends, don't worry, bro. I got you. And then we read this scripture in Genesis 40. The chief cupbearer, however, which is Joseph's friend, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Anyone ever felt like someone forgot about you? Someone you've been maybe ignored Offense comes from neglect. Number four, neglect. Neglect oftentimes is more subtle. It's small, but it's just as painful. To feel like someone doesn't care. Someone knows you're going through a hard time, but they haven't reached out to you. Something as small as, uh, it's your birthday, and no one's happy birthday to you. 
you know? I, my friend Tyler here sitting in the front, I just saw it, and I was like, hey, two years ago, it was his birthday, and none of us, me and a couple of my friends, never said happy birthday to him. I felt so bad, but he was like, bro, don't worry about it. He's so forgiving. And I was like, no, I would have been hurt, right? Because neglect hurts. And also in neglect, Joseph experiences unmet expectations because they told him they'd come back for him, and they didn't. Offense, number five, unmet expectation. Someone told you they'd be there for you and they weren't. They told you they'd show up. They told you they would call. They told you they would text and they didn't. You ever experience unmet expectation? It gets me all the time. Someone not owning up to their words. Offense can come from anywhere. It comes from everywhere. The question is, where, how do you experience offense? The second one is, why am I offended? Question number two, in order to understand offense, why am I offended? And the answer obviously is because they offended you, right? They rejected you. They neglected you. They ignored you. Right. That's not necessarily what I'm asking. Why did they do that? Why did they hurt you? Why did they hurt your feelings? Why did they insult you? Why? All times our answer will be maybe because they're mad at me or because they hate me. I don't think that's true. In fact, the closer to the relationship, the greater opportunity for offense. You ever notice this? The closer you are to people, the more likely they are to hurt you. Because the reality is, we don't really get hurt, that hurt, from people we don't know. We might, for, it might sting for a second, but it doesn't linger, it doesn't get you stuck. Think about traffic. You're being cut off in traffic. It's offensive. But how long do you hold on to that offense? Right? In fact, in March, uh, there was, I was driving, I doored Ash on the side, and, and I was driving, and this guy cut me off. You know how Polaris Mall, like, the stops, stop sign on the end, but not around, and people have no idea what to do. And so, um, he cuts me off, and then he rolls down his window. He had one of these windows. He's denied modern technology for some reason. And, and so, and he flips me the bird. And I'm like, that is so offensive. You cut me off, right? But then he took it a step further because I just laughed at his middle finger. And he put his hand out the window and pointed a, a, a finger gun and shot me twice. I was like, bro, it's that serious to you? I, I, so, I was so shocked. I wish I could have like actually continued on with his skit and like took Two blows. <laughs> but there's no way he's still mad at me. You know, that was in March. There's no, he doesn't remember what car I drove. Like, there's no way he's still holding on to whatever offense was in his heart because he cut me off. It, it doesn't stick around. The offense that sticks around are from the people that we love and the people that love us. You know this because it's the people that you're closest to that make you the most mad. Right? My mom is a nine on the Enneagram, which means she is non-confrontational to everyone else but me. You know what I mean? Because it's the people close to you that can get you the most mad. It's people close to you that offend you, that hurt your feelings. That's the offense that sticks around. That's the offense we need to worry about letting go. I would love to preach from a message entitled, Living Unoffended, but the reality is you are going to be offended. As long as you're living around humanity, offense is coming. Jesus talks about it in Luke 17. So the question is not how do I live unoffended, but it's how do I let go of the small offenses in my life? Does this make sense? How do we let it go? The question we have to ask is, why am I offended? And the answer is not because they hate you. Not because they're mad at you, but they don't hate you. I want you to see what Ephesians 6 says. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies, all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of this dark world. 
I want to suggest to you this morning, the reason that you are offended, the reason you find offense in your relationships is because there is an enemy that is after your relationships. It doesn't want unity. It doesn't want you to experience life-giving relationships. It doesn't want you to have a fruitful marriage. It doesn't want you to be involved in church community. It doesn't want you to have a close friend group that you can go to to carry burdens and pray for you. There is an enemy that is coming against your relationships, and oftentimes we don't know it. That's the problem. We're not aware of the shots that we're taking. We feel the offenses, we feel the blows, but we don't know why they're happening. We ought to. The reason we asked the first question this morning, where is offense coming from, is because we need to know our weak spot. Do you know your weak spot? Out of those five things we mentioned earlier, do you know where offense comes from most in your life? Because there's probably one or two that stick out. For me, it's rejection. I fear rejection. I hate it. I want to be liked. I want to be wanted. Even this morning, I, I fight for the... I, I have a hard time trying to gain approval. It's something me and God have been working out for, for quite some time now. But where does it come from you? Because the reality is in all my relationships, I can find rejection. And it's not because all my friends and family reject me. It's because I can find offense anywhere and call that rejection. They just didn't text me back. Maybe they just got busy. But to me, it communicates, oh, they don't like me. Do you see how small offenses can tell you lies? And all of a sudden, you begin to feel offended. You need to know where your weak spot is. It's like a boxer who has a cut over the right eye. If you're the opponent of the boxer who has a cut of the right eye, why would you tack anywhere else until he starts defending his right eye? At first it's bleeding, then it's swollen, then it's shut, and then one blow and he's down, right? We have to learn how to defend our weak spot. Where do you get offended the most and why? The answer is what Jesus says in Luke 11. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided household falls. I want you to see Jesus' language here. A divided household falls, not an offended household. It's a divided household that falls. But you know this, division doesn't just come out of the clear blue sky. Division comes from somewhere. Where does division come from? Often offense. It starts small. It starts with they hurt my feelings and then it sinks in because you don't deal with it, you don't let it go. And before you know it, multiple offenses. Like no one just gets divorced overnight. No one just leaves their friends overnight. No one just leaves church community. There's something that happens. The enemy's ploy is to offend you so that you are divided against the people closest to you. Jesus cares a whole lot about your relationships and we're gonna get to that in a second. And if he does, whatever Jesus values, the enemy will oppose. And so you need to understand that Jesus values relationships, which means you are going to feel opposition there. I want to show you for a moment just three examples of why asking the question, why am I offended, is so important. Number one, if you're talking about disagreement, here's what, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Look how important unity is within our relationships. And disagreement will come in between that. But, and we think sometimes disagreement's small, but look what the Song of Solomon says. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. It's the small things, the small offenses, the small insults that we harbor that ruin the vineyard of love. It's not the things that you're aware of, it's the things often that you're not the offenses that even this morning, you're not even aware that you have them until something gets brought up. Disagreements have divided the church. Think about it. How many denominations have split 
and broken off. And now the church is more divided because of a small disagreement and nuances in our faith or theology. When we couldn't just come together and be the whole body of Christ, we have to split because of a small disagreement. Or how many churches in the same denomination that get offended because of a small disagreement that split and plant a church in the same city taking half the congregation with them? Division happens in the church. You know why? Because the enemy doesn't want a united church. Doesn't want a united body of Christ. Does it make sense? So here's, so here, here's the reality. In Luke 11, when Jesus says, hey, a divided household will fall, do you know who he's speaking about? He was speaking about the devil. He was speaking about Satan. So, so trust me, your enemy, the enemy of your faith, understands a divided household will fall. And it's even happening to our church. That's why it's so important to ask the question why. Number two is, is how about this? Rejection. Rejection. I want to lean in just for a second because I think, I think this, this is a lie. This is an offense that gets, gets in between believers all the time in the church. If you're not careful, even here at Ethos Church this morning, this shouldn't be news to you, but the devil does not want you here. But he doesn't really care about your one Sunday morning attendance, but he doesn't want you to sink your roots deep into a church, into a community, to be involved in small groups, to serve on Sunday morning. He doesn't want it. Because that, that is coming against his mission. When you have fellow believers carrying your burdens and, and praying for you, and this is the problem. So what's going to happen is you're going to feel rejected. Maybe by this church or another church you attend. It doesn't matter. You're going to feel rejected. And no one's going to come to you and sit next to you and say, hey, we really don't want you here. We hate you. You're not, it's, not, it's not that bold. It's so much, it's so much more subtle than that, right? They didn't text me back. They didn't say hello to me Sunday morning. They didn't invite me to their small group. The small things happen, and all of a sudden, you're going to think, that's going to communicate, they don't want me here, I'm being rejected, and you're going to leave this church, and you're going to find another church until you get hurt there, because churches are made of imperfect people. You're going to find offense if you're looking for it, and you're going to find rejection, because the enemy doesn't want you here. Another example of why it's so important to ask that question is betrayal. Now, in my personal life, me and Ashley's personal life, we've experienced betrayal recently in our marriage. Yeah, that's right. We've had one month of marriage. We've already experienced some betrayal inside of our family. People we love and we hold so near to us. And I don't share that to point finger. I share it to say this. I was unaware of it until God gave me this message to write and to, and, and to speak this morning. Open some areas in my life to say, wow, I'm really offended. Where did it come from, betrayal? Why is it here? Because the enemy wants nothing more than to divide my marriage and the family, even in the first month. It should be no shock to me that we are feeling opposition and offense because there is something coming against what God wants and what God values. Do you see why it's so important to ask the question, why is offense happening? Because it takes your focus off flesh and blood and it points it to where the real problem is. That does not excuse people's behavior of hurting your feelings. It just puts it in proper perspective. Yeah, right? So lastly, where does offense come from? And why is offense here? Once we understand these two things, we can actually now ask the question, how do I let go of offense? Maybe a better question, how do I forgive? Jesus, going back to Matthew chapter five, we read earlier. He says, therefore, if you were offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you should leave your gift there in front of the altar. Now, when I read that this week, I audibly gasped. <gasps> but none of you guys did that. Wait, I want you to see this. Jesus is saying, 
He cares about your relationship so much that if you have an offense against a brother or sister, a close relationship, and you're, and you're thinking about it while you're at church, you feel the offense. You should actually leave worshiping and singing and go work it out. You should actually leave what you're doing. You should leave serving. You should leave worship. You should leave it and go and work it out with your brother or sister. That is shocking to me because that's not what I expect from Jesus. Because I thought Jesus cared about my Sunday attendance. I thought he cared about how much I read my Bible and how much I pray and how much I serve. And let me tell you this, he does. Those are all part of our faith. But Jesus is showing you something that he cares a whole lot about your relationships. Go work it out and then come back and worship. And then offer your gifts. But first, take care of the offense that's in your heart because your brother or sister, there's a, divi- there's a divide there. I didn't expect that from Jesus. But maybe I should because he says, by this you will know. They will know you're my disciples. By what? By how many Maverick City songs I know? By how high I raise my hands in worship? how often I show up at Ethos Church and serve? No. By the way you love one another. By the way you treat one another. By the way you take care of your brothers and sisters. By the way you love. And how do you expect to love your brother or sister if you don't know how to forgive your brother or sister? When did forgiveness stop being the hallmark main attribute of Christianity? Have we not forgotten forgiveness is why we're here in the first place? If you take forgiveness outside of Christianity, you're left with a good teacher who taught some good things. If you take forgiveness outside of the cross, the cross means nothing to me. But you put forgiveness in that story, it means everything. I've changed my life because of it. Forgiveness is the main thing. So then why is it not the main thing we're known by? Why don't we live this out as well as we should? C.S. Lewis says, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has someone, something to forgive. Right? That's true. I love the idea of forgiveness when I need forgiveness. Oh, and then my feelings get hurt. And all of a sudden, forgiveness is a little harder than I thought. I want to suggest this morning, as we get ready to close, the reason we have a hard time forgiving is because Jesus' idea of forgiveness might be too radical for us. Season Christians in the room are like, nope, that's not true, Weston. I believe in the forgiveness. Really? You believe in his forgiveness for you, but what about you acting it out? Oftentimes, this is too radical. I'll prove it. Peter comes to Jesus one day. He says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister? Seven times. And the reason he did it like that, real cocky, seven times, is because he thought Jesus would go, Peter, you are amazing. Jesus, Peter would have grown up in Judaism learning that three times was enough. My brother Tyler offends me. I forgive you, bro, no worries. Twice? Oh, man. I forgive you, bro. Three times? Hey, it's all good. Four times? Okay. You weren't even sorry the first time, were you? So when Peter goes to Jesus and says seven times, he's expecting Jesus to go, you are the greatest disciple. I must be really rubbing off on you. You doubled it and added one. Seven's my favorite number. How'd you know? No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says no, more like 70 times seven. And no, not mathematician. That is not 490 times the limit of forgiveness. Jesus is saying, 
you need to learn an unlimited perspective of forgiveness. In fact, you probably should stop counting how many times you forgive your brother or sister. And this is why Jesus' idea of forgiveness might be too radical for you and I. Because imagine the person that you came to church with this morning, sitting next to you, offended you 400 times this year. You're like, I need to find a new friend. No, no, no. Then they, then they offend you one more time. That's 401. And you're like, I don't know if I can keep forgiving this person. I would suggest that you don't. First Corinthians teaches this. Paul says in the love letter that we teach at weddings, it says this. Love keeps no record of wrong. In the Greek, what he's literally saying is love does not keep a ledger of wrongdoing. For anyone in the room that doesn't know what a ledger is, because I learned, because I won accounting class in high school. Um, you input, it keeps track of your, your finances, and you input things like debits and credits, deposits and withdrawals. And what Paul is saying, love does not keep record of withdrawals. It only keeps record of what's coming. It only keeps record of the good. It only keeps record of the deposits in our life. Therefore, when God sees you this morning, he sees no wrongdoing if you accepted Jesus into your heart. Because love does not keep record of it. You have no wrongdoing in the eyes of God. He sees Jesus when he sees you. And then you sin, and it's like one, and then, Jesus, and then God's like, well, oh, Jesus, you're good. Back to zero. And this is how we're called to forgive. But that's hard. But I want to suggest if you got offended 400 times by a brother or sister, and you had a hard time forgiving the 401st, that maybe it's the, the problem is you've kept record of the 400. And we have to be called to live out what love is, and it does not keep record of wrongdoing. Jesus continues talking to Peter. He says, Peter, there's a story. There's a king. He, he, he had a servant, and the servant owed him 10,000 talents. We'll get to understanding what that means in just a moment. He couldn't pay his debt. And the servant said, please forgive me. And the king's like, oh, man, I got to sell you and your family. He said, no, please forgive me. And the, and the king says, okay, fine. You're forgiven of all your debt. Go. Imagine his elation, how excited he was. He walks out of the king's presence and sees someone, a friend or a fellow servant that owed him a hundred denarii, and he began to choke him. Where's my money? God's like, I can't pay it. And he throws him in jail. And you're not shocked by this, but I, I want you to be. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you an illustration. 10,000 talents is the equivalent. Imagine this suitcase is filled with coin, and it weighs 60 pounds. Now imagine 5,600 of these suitcases being carried by men stretching for a, a, a single file line that would stretch for five miles long. That's what 10,000 talents is. Now in comparison to 10,000 talents, when he was forgiven up by the king, the guy owed him 100 denarii, when in comparison to that, 5,660 pound bags of coin would have been mere pocket change. And he was forgiven of all this and said, where's my pocket change? Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers or sisters, in the view of God's mercy, in the view of God's forgiveness, in the view of God's love, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this, I want you to see this, is your reasonable service. This is not radical. This is reasonable. Let's do a poll. If the man that was forgiven 5,660 pound bags of coin walked out and forgave his friend who owed him pocket change. Would that have been radical forgiveness? 
or would that actually probably have been reasonable? That's reasonable forgiveness. And I want you to see this. Let's take a liberty. Let's assume this morning that the guy that was forgiven of the 10,000 talents went to his friend and said, don't worry about it, bro, pocket change. What would his response have been? What would his response have been? Well, why did you just forgive me of the 100 denarii? Oh, dude, I was just with the king. You know the king? Yeah, 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 the king. Yeah, uh, he forgave me 10,000 talents. So like, of course I'm gonna give you for, forgive you for the 100 denarii. I just got forgiven for 10,000 talents. Now the servant who owed 100 denarii would have been like, wow, thank you so much. But what would his perspective been of the king? The king did what? He forgave you of how much? He forgave you of what? And all of a sudden, you don't have one servant in all of the king. You have two. Because I saw the forgiveness that you've given me, but you just pointed me back to the forgiveness that he given you. Do you see what our forgiveness does? It shines a light on the greatest forgiveness of all time. It shines a light on the 10,000 talents, the 5,600 pound bags that we are in debt for. How many times have I neglected God? How many times have I betrayed God? This week. And God says, you're free. Jesus came to die for me to set me free from my debt. And yet here I am holding on to mere pocket change because you didn't text me back. Now we have to we have to focus on Jesus. And when we do, the offenses that are in my life against my friends, against my family, they're mere pocket change in comparison. Joseph, I promise I'm ending here. Joseph, back in our story, he gets set free two years after his friends forgot him. And he, and he interprets this dream that there's going to be a famine in the land. And because of this, Pharaoh puts him in second in command in all of Egypt so that he can distribute and feed the people that are inevitably going to be starving and hungry. Joseph is in power now. I'm going to give you one guess who shows up hungry, in need of food. His brothers. The people that offended him, that disagreed with him, that rejected him and caused a whole mess of problems for Joseph. They show up and they're in need. They don't recognize Joseph at first, but he, he recognizes them. Eventually, he lets them know who it is. And they're afraid, as they should be, because they've really done something against Joseph. And Joseph says, no, nah, don't be afraid. God has me exactly where he wants me. And the evil that was done to me was for good. It was for the saving of many lives, because if I had not been here, I would not have saw the famine and we would not have fed these people. It saved lives, the offense that you did to me. And he fed them and their families. And he didn't hold the offense against them. He didn't hold the grudge against them. And what a beautiful picture this is, right? But I don't want you to confuse this. I don't want you to think this was forgiveness because it wasn't forgiveness. What we saw with Joseph and his brothers was reconciliation. That wasn't forgiveness. Reconciliation is different than forgiveness because when I was writing this message, I saw some offenses in my heart that had been there for a long time. And I begin to ask the God, I ask God, I say, God, how do I forgive people that don't want my forgiveness? How do I forgive people that don't even, that refuse to be aware that they need my forgiveness? They refuse to admit that they wronged me. How do I do that? And I, and I really believe God said, Wesson, you're asking the wrong question. 
you're asking how you can be reconciled. But forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. You can forgive this morning. You don't have to wait until they say sorry because God didn't wait for your permission to forgive you. You can forgive. You may not be able to reconcile this morning unless the person who hurt you is sitting next to you, which in case, probably just wait until you get in the car. But you can forgive. You can ask the question, where did this offense come from? Pinpoint it. You can ask why the offense is here. Because there is something that opposes what Jesus loves. And he wants division in your relationships. And then you can Look at the forgiveness that you have been given, the 5,660 pound bags of coins that God has forgiven you of, and you can say, wait, if God forgave me that, I can forgive you this. You can let it go. You can forgive this morning. And when we do eat those church, when we do let go of the pocket change of our lives, we are a physical representation of Jesus here on earth. And people will come to see Jesus in a light they never have before. Oh, who is this king? has forgiven of you so much so that you're able to forgive me what I've done to you. Oh, this is what it looks like when we forgive pocket change.